This is a talk by Joel titled Shifting the Base of Reference, recorded August 8, 1992, at the Great Space Center in Lone Pine, California. Okay, um, first of all, when I was living up here, uh, Dr. Wolf did have a very profound influence on me because perhaps like some of you, uh, I didn't associate mysticism with philosophy or the intellect. That really wasn't my path, and I would have been ready to sort of just write that off. And I consider Dr. Wolf the person who taught me the value of philosophy and the value of the intellect on a path. And uh, so to, uh, for that I am uh, undyingly grateful. Uh, when I was here, uh, I had a little precept for myself not to talk about my ideas or my philosophy or my path in the house of my teacher. I very much consider Dr. Wolf my teacher. And uh, now that he's not no longer here in the flesh, I don't feel quite so bound, but I still like to honor that. And you people have come here for Dr. Wolf's convention, not for my convention. And so I'd really like to talk not about my ideas so much, but about Dr. Wolf's and Dr. Wolf's philosophy. And I thought we'd be very brave uh, this afternoon. Uh, they're having fun. If you've ever lived up here once in a while, they, if you're out sunbathing, they like to uh, buzz you. It can be an awakening experience of its own, I'll tell you. Um, so I've heard uh, a lot of very good talks here uh, at very conventions and just people who come up here. And often, though, they're kind of tangential to Dr. Wolf's philosophy. Uh, and I think he would have approved of this very much. But rarely uh, have I heard a speaker try and just dig right in and grapple with uh, some of the fundamental principles of Dr. Wolf's philosophy. And that's why I said I thought we'd try and be brave this morning and uh, tackle two principles that are very close to the heart of his philosophy. I say they're close to the heart because, of course, the heart is enlightenment, and I'm not going to talk about that this morning. But there are two uh, principles that he refers to over and over again, and the first is uh, what he calls the shift in the base of reference. The shift in the base of reference. And if you think that's bad, the second one is substantiality is inversely proportional to ponderability. I even said it right, I think. <laughs> so uh, these are not easy uh, concepts, and I'd like to try and talk about them, uh, hopefully in a way that will make them more concrete and more understandable, and give you some idea of what, uh, the, how these can be used in your personal life. In spite, of their, uh, in spite of the fact that they're all $100 words here. So let's begin with this idea of shifting the base of reference. About uh, 500 years ago and before, almost all human beings on the face of this planet assumed that the Earth was stationary. For very good reason. It doesn't feel like it's moving unless there's an earthquake or something. You look up at those mountains there. They're still, they're silent, they have a majesty. Nothing seems to move. 
And when you look up at the sky, you notice in the morning the sun comes up over the Inyos over there. And uh, if you watch it actually carefully, you can actually see it move very slowly. But then an hour or two later you look and it's up here, and then another hour or two it's over here, and then it's over here. By the evidence of your senses, the sun appears to go around the earth. And at night, you come out here, and a gorgeous night's up here, and you look at the heavens, the moon seems to do the same thing. It appears in one part of the sky and goes down another part of the sky. If you were a shepherd or lived outdoors, as uh, many people did in archaic times, we don't so much anymore, you get to know the stars. They're your TV, you know, instead of watching TV, you watch the heavens. Something we've lost, I think we could uh, go back to that. And in watching the heavens, people noticed, first of all, that the stars seem to move almost all the stars in a fixed pattern. And it would change throughout the course of a year. It was like this great dome uh, with these points on it. And it would move around, around the earth. The earth was central, stable, standing still. The uh, Siberians used to think of the night sky as a great tent spread upon the earth with holes in it. It's kind of a nice image. It's interesting sometime to uh, go out at night, by the way, and try to look at the stars, the sky, as the ancients did. Get into their mindset. And then as time went by, uh, and people started studying the stars more closely, the sky more closely, they began to notice that a few of these stars weren't fixed. They didn't move in this fixed pattern. They wandered around. They called them planets, and planet means in Greek, it comes from a term that means the wanderers. And they wandered around. But they still wandered around the Earth, apparently. So ever since the dawn of humanity, people just took this as a fundamental assumption of life. For very good reason. Everything that you see, uh, all the evidence of your senses tells you that this is true. You have no reason to doubt that it's uh, not true. And then about 500 years ago, a German astronomer named Copernicus uh, was studying the uh, planets and the stars. And by then, astronomers had mapped the the course of all these heavenly bodies, and they'd mapped the course of the planets, and there was a funny thing that happened with them. They would start out, this is over a period of time, you can't see this in one night, and they'd start to go around the Earth, and then you would see they'd start to retrograde, they'd start to double back on themselves, and then they'd start moving forward again. And this was strange, and when astronomers tried to work out the mathematics of the, uh, the patterns of these planets, uh, it didn't quite fit. There was this element of uh, randomness in it, a raggedy edge and so forth. Interestingly enough, uh, this system that had been worked out with the Earth as the center, they just took this as the base of reference for this astronomy, was called the Ptolemaic system. And Copernicus had gone back and studied Pythagoras and Plato. And to him, there was an intuition 
that the universe must be harmonious. There's no logical proof that this is true. But he had this intuition, and so these, uh, these schemes that astronomers had worked out using the, the Earth as the base of reference were raggedy. Uh, they weren't pretty. They were kind of ugly. And Copernicus wrote in these terms, and if you think uh, astronomers and scientists are just cold-blooded uh, people, uh, you should read some of Copernicus's writings. He said, our system of astronomy, as it presently is, taking the Earth as the base of reference, the still point, and looking at the whole cosmos as though it revolves around this point, is like making a painting where you take an arm from one person and a head from a beast, a cow, let's say, and a leg from uh, a donkey, and you try to put them all together. And you don't end up with something harmonious and beautiful. You end up with a monstrosity. And this bothered him. And somewhere along the line, uh, he got this intuition. He might have actually gotten it from an earlier Greek astronomer that what would happen if we shifted the base of reference? What would happen if we thought of the sun as standing still? Notice this is a shift in the imagination. He didn't go anyplace. It's just a shift in his imagination. Supposing, instead of just assuming that the Earth is the center of the cosmos, we take the sun to be. We think of the sun as standing still. We think of the Earth as going around the sun. And we think of all these planets as going around the sun. And lo and behold, something magical happened. He went out and he worked it out. He didn't have it quite down, but he worked out enough to see what appeared to be a problem. This retrograde motion, which forced astronomers to plot these epicycles so that the planets were going on all these crazy backtracking and making these epicycles. All this, he didn't solve the problem of epicycles and retrograde motions. He dissolved the problem. From this point of view, there was no retrograde motion, truly speaking. There were no epicycles. It was only an apparent phenomena. It wasn't real. You could still go out and look in the sky, and you know, of course, you see Venus coming this way, and then the next night you see it start to double back. But now he knew that this was, in a sense, an illusion. You could never solve work out the mathematics of these epicycles with the Earth as the center. It would always be uh, unharmonious. But once you shifted the base of reference, once you made this intuitive leap of the imagination, and you took the sun as the base of reference, everything started to fall into place. And suddenly, the heavens were beautiful in his terms. Things moved harmoniously. Now, it's quite important to realize that Copernicus had no physical evidence to go on. In other words, there wasn't any breakthrough in astronomy that some new comet had been sighted or anything like that. This all came about from shifting the base of reference. This is what uh, Dr. Wolf meant when he used the term shifting the base of reference. It's when we uh, examine our lives, 
and we look at something that we take to be fundamental, a fundamental assumption about reality, about who we are, and so forth. We don't even bother to question it. And we start to question it. And then if we make a shift in the base of reference, if we choose another point as the base of reference, the whole world can change for you. And the other thing we should realize about Dr. Wolf's work, Dr. Wolf trusted reason, just the way Copernicus trusted his mathematics. He trusted it beyond any evidence of his senses. He trusted it to the point where he would question the most fundamental assumptions that everybody around him made about life. And he spent 24 years questioning those assumptions and getting ideas from uh, the East, particularly from Shankara, and examining these ideas in the light of reason, of logic, to the point where he convinced himself that they had to be true, just as Copernicus convinced himself that this had to be true, that the sun was the center of the universe. By reason alone, in spite of uh, what was apparent. And then when he convinced himself intellectually in terms of reason, he went back and meditated on these principles. It's not just a question of arriving at some theoretical knowledge. He describes how he went off uh, into the hills, uh, you know, digging for gold and stuff, and he takes Shankara along with him. And it's another lesson we can learn, at whatever level of spiritual teaching, or whatever books you're reading, or whatever, the teachings are to be pondered. They're not just something you learn intellectually, you can spit back in a paper for your PhD or something. Pondered over and over and over again. And this uh, produced for Dr. Wolf, this process, uh, five realizations, the first three of which were short of enlightenment, he called them noetic realizations. And then the third one, substantiality is inversely proportional to ponderability, he called the noetic insight a realization that was the final key that opened the door. Now, if you're a Janani, you won't be satisfied with Dr. Wolf's uh, saying all this, you'll want to go and you won't trust anything but your own reason and logic and so forth. If you're not a Janani though, and if you're willing to take Dr. Wolf on a little bit of faith, then we might be able to use it in a meditative way, which is what I want to get to later here. But before we can do that, we have to understand a little bit about what this uh, mouthful of words means. Does anybody here want to take a stab at explaining what uh, this formula means. You're doing pretty good so far. <laughs> uh, I've asked Tom here to help me out because I can't hold the microphone and hold the blackboard and everything else. But let's convert this into an, an equation. Now, don't those of you who don't like mathematics don't don't run off now to to take a leak or something. This is going to be very simple, very simple. Uh, so if we could put up substantiality as inversely in a, in a, you know, S equals 1 over P. By the way, what are some other, to get a better handle on this while he's writing it, what are some other synonyms for substantiality here? 
um, and ponderability. Reality and what? Appearance. Okay, good. Reality and appearance. Reality is inversely proportional to, to appearance. Reality and sensuality. I don't mean the kind that you see in racy movies. I mean uh, physical, physicality. Say, say what? Density. density. Well, yes, density. Sure. Uh, what, what Dr. Wolf meant by ponderability, or the, the, the limit of ponderability that we know of, uh, the, the, um, of what we consider ponderable, is ponderable matter. So very dense. He talks about this. Ponderable matter. Ponderable matter is like a rock. And I asked you all to bring a rock. That's ponderable matter. That's very ponderable in his sense. That means it's very apparent. It's right here. It seems to be very substantial. We don't have any doubt. There's a rock here, you know. You can, you can do all kinds of things with it, right? You can throw it at people. <laughs> they don't like the lecture. <laughs> very substantial. It appears to us to be very substantial. But according to Dr. Wolf's uh, formula, just the reverse is the case. Just the reverse is the case. This is, this is how this ties into shifting the base of reference. We assume that this is reality. You can't get more real than a rock. You look out of those mountains, they're made of granite. Well, you can't get more real than that granite mountains over there. Now, let's see what happens with this formula. Let's take um, substantiality, reality, on, and ponderability, and let's make out a little scale here of 1 to 10. And let's start, let's call this rock uh, a 10. No, uh, let's start with something less. Let's start with a leaf. A leaf is a little bit more ephemeral. So we're going to say substantiality is inversely proportional to a 5. Okay? No, no, just write out the... Uh, the, the uh, formula, and we can see how it goes. Now, most of you know enough mathematics to read that. That means the substantiality, the value of this leaf, the substantial value of the leaf is one-fifth, right? If we go to a rock, and let's call a rock a 10, we write in we substitute in 10 here for what's ponderable. The value goes up, but now we only have a tenth. The value of the ponderability goes up, but the value of the substantiality decreases. The more substantial we think it, we think it is, the more ponderable it is, in Dr. Wolf's terms, the less substantial it is. Now let's go the other way. Uh, we had a leaf, um, let's take, oh, the breath of the buffalo. There's a beautiful, <laughs> oh, there's a beautiful Indian poem about uh, American Indian, what is life? And it's like the breath of a buffalo on a winter day. Beautiful image, huh? Let's call that a two. See, Dr. Wolf would have said that, that Indian teacher's getting closer. Now it's a half, a half is much more substantial than a tenth. Let's take something like uh, uh, Copernicus's heliocentric theory, which is theoretical. It's a product of the mind, imagination. 
Let's call that, that doesn't seem to us very ponderable at all. It's far away from a rock. So let's only give that a value of one-tenth. Now, Tom's going to do some calculations here. How do, what does that come out to? That's why I asked Tom to do it. He's the mathematician. That might be beyond you, mathematics, but trust Tom. Have faith in Tom. One over one-tenth actually comes out to ten. So now substantiality is ten. You see how this formula works? If you plug in what you believe is most substantial, in Dr. Wolf's terms, it's least substantial. And the farther you get away from that, the more substantial it becomes. So finally, supposing we reduce ponderability to zero, nothing. I have a hard time writing that there. <laughs> Why? <laughs> what is that? Infinity. Who said that? There's a mathematician. Infinity. When what's ponderable is nothing, substantiality goes to infinity. It becomes infinite. Is everybody following this? I, I didn't ever say I could make sense to you. I, I'm just trying to help you explain Dr. Wolf's work. This is my big cop-out. This isn't what I teach. It's what Dr. Wolf teaches. Well, we're going to try, actually, to see if we can make a little sense out of this. Uh, or maybe nonsense out of it. Um, so this is, uh, this is what this fancy phrase, substantiality is inversely proportional to ponderability, means. Now, what Dr. Wolf claims, then, is that this idea that the rock which seems to be so ponderable and seems to be so real is the most substantial thing in, a, in the world, in the universe, that that is a, an illusion. It's very much like the illusion of the retrograde motion in the pre-Copernican universe. And because we believe in this illusion, we have all sorts of problems. We believe that what's most substantial, for instance, in our lives are our bodies. We believe we are our bodies. And so we get very worried because, of course, our bodies, they're very substantial, but they're not absolutely substantial. They're impermanent. And so over a period of time, we look into the mirror and we start seeing the gray hairs and the wrinkles and we start to go, uh-oh, uh-oh. Our mistake isn't that there's a body here. The mistake is somehow our identification, our, our taking the body to be the most substantial thing. The same thing applies to our emotions, to our thoughts, although they get less and less substantial. As long as we're identifying with anything that is ponderable, we have something finite. It hasn't reached infinity yet. And whatever is finite is impermanent, subject to change, subject to dissolution, death, and so forth. And whenever we're attached to impermanent, transitory things, we're going to have suffering. It's the, just the nature of the world. It's not because some big daddy in the sky ordained it this way. It's just the nature of the world. In fact, the world, the beauty of the world is its impermanence. If you could imagine, if you could actually get the world the way you think you want it, static, you would find it was a very awful, ugly place. 
You could have no Bach, no Beethoven, no music. A note would be there and it just ah, forever. It couldn't change. The very beauty, the charm, the lila, the play of the world is, is its impermanence, is its insubstantiality. So it's not a problem with the world. It's some problem with us. Just the way the problem with the pre-Copernican astronomers wasn't anything in the heavens or the cosmos. Nothing changed. It was a shift in the base of reference. So, let me read you a little something from uh, Pathways here, uh, having given this little background on it, and see now how we might use this. So Dr. Wolf has just finished describing his insight into this uh, idea that actually uh, all his life, what he had taken to be most substantial was least substantial. And then what he took to be least substantial must be the most substantial. Let us then take the standpoint that ponderable matter or the sensuously perceived world is to be regarded as relative emptiness so that absolute matter in this sense would be an absolute vacuum. We then see that the relative world or this seen universe is produced by a kind of process of negation and hence, from the standpoint of metaphysical philosophy, it would have to be regarded as maya, or an illusion. From this, it is not to be concluded that the universe is without value, but it does imply that if a man misplaces his predication of reality, he would then be caught in an illusion in the sense that produces bondage. Nonetheless, it would still remain true that if he avoids this error, he can, he can, through the universe, find the real. Most of humanity has fallen into this error, error, and that is the cause of all suffering. Now, let's go over this a little bit more uh, slowly here. So, first of all, he's suggesting that we shift our base of reference. Let us take the standpoint that ponderal matter, or the sensuously perceived world, is to be regarded as relative emptiness so that absolute matter in this sense would be an absolute vacuum. Now, this idea is, is uh, uh, not really so foreign if you read anything about mysticism. The true nature of form in Buddhism is shunyata, emptiness. Very common idea in Buddhism. If you understand our problem in Buddhism, we don't understand that the true nature of form is shunyata, is emptiness. We think that the true nature of form is substantial. That's another way of saying what Dr. Wolf's saying here about ponderable matter. The whole trick of Buddha's enlightenment is simply to realize that, oh, the true nature of form is emptiness. It has no intrinsic, substantial existence on its own. This is not the, um, our sort of common idea of a void, that you know, nothing appears. It's the true nature of the epicycles in pre-Copernican astronomy is that they're shunyata, they're empty. They don't have any basis in reality. Another, uh, another from another tradition, in um, Kashmir Shovism, the uh, cosmology, the way the cosmos manifests is described this way. Shiva, or Parashiva, 
which is the equivalent of uh, Dr. Wolf's consciousness without an object and without a subject, which is equivalent of Brahman, which is equivalent of whatever term you're using, is such a complete fullness that there is no room for a distinguishable world. So, in order to produce the world, uh, Parashiva manifests Shakti, the power of manifestation, who produces the world and operates through negation, through negating that very fullness so that a world can appear. In Kabbalism, the Ensof, the infinite, boundless uh, term for God, produces the world through a process of tzitzim, which is withdrawal. In a certain sense, emptying a space so that the world can happen, because the Ensof fills everything. The Ensof is that plenum that Dr. Wolf describes. Now, we can get some idea of this, uh, actually, just right here on this lawn. I was going to try and do a little shadow show, and the light didn't cooperate. Have any of you ever done that, um, the shadow show with the fingers? And have you seen anybody who's good at it? You can really get a little drama going. You can have both hands, and you can make one into a snake, and the other into a dog, and the dog barks, and the snake hisses back. And you can get very involved in that drama especially if you have a mind like a child the way I do. And uh, it seems quite real. How is that created? We can look at the shadows on this lawn and see the form. There's a form here, for instance, of this shadow uh, that's created by the shadow of the tree. And actually, look, it looks quite substantial, doesn't it? But it's really created by the negation of light. There, no, the shadow isn't something substantial and real. The shadow is created, it's an appearance, by blocking out the light. If I had nothing but light, nothing would appear. I couldn't recognize anything, you know what I mean? It's only by when I block out the light that things start to appear. But it's not a true blocking out of the light, because actually the light, we have not touched the sun at all. Those of you who are familiar with Dr. Wolf's philosophy will recognize this when he talks about ponderable matter in some sense being a zone of unconsciousness. A zone of unconsciousness. In fact, pick up your rock for a second. Everybody get their rock out. Now, feel that rock, and take Yogi's advice here. And remember, you, this is something that you come back to and, and meditate on. And you, Chances are this isn't going to click with you the first time. Feel that. What you feel there is a zone of unconsciousness. Hmm? Look at it. See? That is, I'm looking at a zone of unconsciousness. This is what I'm looking at right now when I look at this rock. Notice how radical this is, how different. He's asking when he says shift the base of reference. This is not just a, a, a remedial philosophy that help you get along better in life. This is turning everything upside down. Topsy-turvy. 
Let's go on here just a little bit. Then he says, uh, we then see that the relative world or this seen universe is produced by a kind of process of negation and hence from the standpoint of metaphysical philosophy it would have to be regarded as maya or illusion. Maya is not that we see uh, shadow figures on the screen. Maya is that we think that the shadow figures on the screen are real. It says, but that it does not imply, uh, no, from this it is not to be concluded that the universe is without value. In some sense, we could say the universe that we live in, this universe where we take appearances to be real and we ignore reality, is a fictional universe. But don't be scared by that term. Hamlet is a fictional play and a fictional character. It doesn't mean Hamlet is valueless. All great art, in a sense, is fiction, and we wouldn't be without it for one moment. It has tremendous value and meaning as long as, as, long as we don't uh, lose track of the fact that it is fiction. I once read a description of a Western traveler in Afghanistan somewhere around uh, in the 30s, I think it was, and he was going to these little villages and uh, he arrived at this little Afghan village where there were these very fierce Pathan tribesmen who all go around armed with daggers and guns and stuff. And somebody in the village had brought a battery-operated or generated um, 16-millimeter projector. And they were projecting a Hollywood uh, cowboy movie of that era. The kind that used to be filmed up here in Lone Pine, by the way. You know, Hopalong Cassidy, good guys wear white hats, bad guys wear black hats, heroines are always in trouble, uh, bad guys always want to do nasty things to heroines, and good guys always rescue them. Very easy plot to follow, you don't have to understand English. And they were projecting this movie on a sheet in this little village for these uh, Pathon tribesmen. And the people were really getting into it. And uh, it got to the climax, and the villain had, I don't know, he tied the heroine down to the railroad tracks, and the train was coming, and the villain was tying her down. And one of these guys leapt up, pulled out his dagger, and charged the screen, and, and slew the villain on the spot. <laughs> now, he had lost track that this was a fiction. You see what I mean? This is our problem. This is what Yogi goes on to explain here. He says, but the very agency that caused the fall may be used as a stepping stone to recognition. To achieve this, a certain Copernican shift in individual consciousness is necessary. Notice, here's exactly him using the analogy of Copernicus. A shift in our viewpoint of the world. Thus, instead of regarding the sensuously apparent as being substantial, that standpoint must be reversed. Then we would view the seeming emptiness of space, where there is a relative absence of physical matter, as being actually far more substantial than any ponderable matter. We would thus say, increase of ponderability implies decrease of substantiality and vice versa. Consequently, in some sense, the laws governing the ponderable become the obverse of the laws governing the substantial. The foregoing discussion gives us a new angle for interpreting the meaning of the technique designed to arouse recognition by the systematic denial of all that is ponderable or thinkable. This is a well-known technique in mystical traditions. 
If any of the, for instance, if any of you have ever read The Cloud of Unknowing, a, a book of Christian mysticism by an anonymous author, the whole technique is to, uh, to sit down and meditate on God, but you don't know what God is, but everything that arises in consciousness, you say, this isn't God. So you keep your focus. And whatever is ponderable that arises, you say, well, this isn't substantial. All traditions have this technique. Ramana Maharshi has this, and it's a, uh, in his terms, it's a uh, personal meditation. Whatever uh, thought arises, whatever arises in consciousness that you identify with, you say, no, this isn't me. It's known in many, many traditions. The end of the process is the arrival at a seeming nothingness, i.e., pure consciousness without an object. Notice this. is a very important clue here. We are always looking on a spiritual path for something ponderable, some experience, even a very uh, refined one, even a blissful one. But he's saying it's still a something. It's still an object. It's still something in consciousness. Our problem is, actually, all of us, at every moment, are completely aware of consciousness without an object. It's our fundamental ground, but it seems to us to be nothing, so we don't notice it. We ignore it. And that's what ignorance, by the way, literally means. Our ignorance, which is the root of suffering and the root of samsara, is our ongoing ignoring what is obvious and always here. We just don't notice it. Well, we're going to get to that. I'm going to give you a little meditation. There really, actually, in a funny way, there is no way. It's a little paradox. For instance, right? Well, now, right now, supposing you asked me, can, can we put the camera on here because it won't make any sense here. Supposing, uh, Maura, you asked me, how can I sit down? Look, everybody looking out. How can I answer that question? I can't, I can't tell her how to sit down. What, what possible instruction could I give her to get her to sit down? The only thing I possibly can do is try to, uh, some device to make her realize she is sitting down. And this morning we got in a little, uh, into a little bit of these paradoxes. I don't want to go into this too deeply. But you see the problem from a teacher's point of view. You ask, how can I realize this? How can I be enlightened or whatever? Well, I, in a certain sense, there is no way. So, uh, but maybe, uh, you know, maybe there's something in a, in, a, in a dialogue or in a teaching or in a meditation. You just wake up to the fact that there is no way, and that's enlightenment. Let, let's go on here with Yogi Soups. Uh, so this seeming nothingness is a very important clue here. This stage, plus the identification of oneself with that seeming nothingness, produces at once the recognition. But at that moment, that nothingness becomes complete fullness and absolute substantiality. So there are two things, uh, two little uh, beats to this. One is you have to uh, recognize, in a sense, I don't mean it in his terms, I mean, what's a, a, become aware of that nothingness. You have to find it. And the other is to identify with it. 
In a certain sense, in a relative sense only here, we can talk about a spiritual path. The part that you can put effort and will into is finding that nothingness, which I'm speaking very loosely here, in a certain sense you carry around with you all the time. That part is, uh, there are techniques and practices and so forth. The final one, identifying with it, that's I would call grace. Don't worry about that one. Let's, first of all, let's find this. How are we going to find this? Uh, so I wanted to uh, take you through a little meditation here to see how we can make these somewhat philosophical and abstract ideas even more concrete for our own experience. If you don't believe at all that substantiality is inversely proportional to ponderability, and if everything I've said to you you think is complete, you know what, uh, then it won't work for you. Then you have to go be like yogi. You have to go spend 24 years convincing yourself that it is true. But if you'll accept it on faith for a little bit, we could take this as a basis for a meditation. We could try to see in our own experience what yogi is talking about here. So, let's get our rock here. Okay, now, I would like everybody to hold your rock in your hand and close your eyes here. And first of all, just feel the rock. Just move it around a little bit, hoist it up and down a little bit. Feel its weight, its texture. Now, all this, all your life, you've been regarding this as very substantial. Now, just in your mind, be willing to, as an experiment, say, okay, supposing this is really nothing, this is empty. Now, do not question the bare physical sensation here. In that sense, your senses aren't deceiving you. Don't think that there's some other way to feel this rock. What you feel, what you're holding on to here is emptiness, in yogi's terms. That is what emptiness feels like. Okay, now put the rock down. And as you put the rock down, feel your hand for a minute. Just the sensation of the hand. It's a little lighter, isn't it? Not quite as solid, not quite as dense, someone said earlier. That's, in yogi's terms, that's a little bit more substantial here. Now I'm going to ask you to keep your eyes closed. And bring to mind, visualize a room you're familiar with, or a face, or something very concrete. A good friend, some place you grew up, a house, whatever, whatever you may wish. Now, that appearance is an appearance in consciousness. In yogi's terms, that is an object in consciousness. 
In our normal way of thinking, it seems not very substantial. Notice you probably lose it and have to sort of get it back. You have to reimagine it. It probably fades quite quickly. It can be very vivid for a moment. If you, if you have a good recall of someone, uh, someone's face and stuff, it can be quite vivid for a moment, but it tends to fade very quickly. It has no physical sensation, direct physical sensation. Generally, we consider these products of our imagination not very substantial. In Yogi's terms, you're getting closer now. This is more substantial than that rock you were holding in your hand. We might get a little abstract here and consider the word rock. You might say it in your mind, not vocally, but verbalize it in your mind, rock. And then that verbalization in your mind, rock, actually... Uh, and it refers to a, a kind of an idea that is quite abstract. In other words, the idea of rock is not dependent on any particular rock you hold in your hand. You could go out uh, in the desert here and you'd find lots of different kinds of rocks. People here have brought different colored rocks, different sizes, different shapes. The word rock is the, con the concept, the idea of rock is it doesn't depend on any uh, physical, ponderable rock. From a scientific point of view, we call it uh, more, more universal. It covers lots of phenomena. Ponderable rocks can come and go. A rock can be smashed and so forth. The idea of rock, however, doesn't as much. Now we're getting even closer in yogi's terms. We're getting farther away from ponderable matter. We're getting into realms that we consider usually quite insubstantial. And in yogi's terms, we're getting more and more substantial. Now let's take something, uh, visualize in your mind or recall something that's beautiful or an experience that you had that was beautiful. A sunset, a mountaintop, a person, an animal, whatever it is, a beautiful teaching. Now, pick something else that's beautiful. Drop that one and go to something else. Maybe something, if you can think of it, something quite different. So if you picked a person, uh, maybe a beautiful piece of music. Can you hear a beautiful piece of music in your head? If you're not very musical, uh, if you're more mathematically inclined, you might think of a beautiful theorem in mathematics. Now, drop whatever the object is you're contemplating and try and just focus on beauty. This isn't asking yourself, what is beauty, what is beauty? What is the sense, the presence of just pure beauty? That beauty that shines through all these objects. Now 
We're getting very far away from ponderable matter here. But in yogi's terms, we're getting much closer to what is truly substantial. Now, as this gets more and more difficult, now try to get a sense of an infinite awareness, a pure consciousness, without any boundaries, without any limits. See if you can just sort of dissolve into that. You might just let the mind continue just to endlessly expand into that. Now, in yogi's terms, you'd be very close here, but that ain't it. That's still an object in consciousness. A very subtle object in consciousness, but an object in consciousness. Now turn your attention to nothing. If you found nothing, you've got the first step. You've located it. This is a, a little meditation, uh, or an exercise really, just to try and get some um, brief personal experience of what Yogi's talking about, about shifting this base of reference. Instead of considering the rocks uh, and the cars and the refrigerators of the world to be the reality, the real reality of the world, it's turning our attention more and more to what's subtler and subtler. Now, in this exercise, uh, we lost track of uh, rocks and so forth. And in many meditative practices, uh, this is what you do after you've uh, learned a certain stability. You go on to uh, look for states of samadhi where uh, objects, ponderable objects, disappear. Not because that state of samadhi itself is something to be uh, latched onto as some um, privileged permanent state that you want to be in it all the time. It's because when there are less objects and less concrete ponderable objects, there's less distractions. And when there's less distractions, eventually attention will find that nothingness, that emptiness that Yogi talks about and recognize it not as something that is um, uh, something other than all this, but is the true ground and substance of all this. So I'd like to hear uh, if any of you uh, would like to share any of your little experiences here in this meditation or any other sorts of meditations you've uh, done. Yes. You said do a meditation on nothing. Um, a diagram of a black hole appeared in my mind's eye. I don't, you know, it was sort of like I had seen this diagram of something sucking up all light and just having no thing. I don't, I don't know if you. Yeah, but this is interesting because a black hole was something, 
<laughs> ah, you see, and, and this meditation is tricky, and the reason you have to do it, because you think you've arrived at emptiness, and you say, oh no, but wait a minute, that's a black hole. A true nothing is not the absence of light in the sense that, oh, I close my eyes and I just see black. So now I've just got black. I thought I could think of nothing, because anything I thought of was something... She couldn't think of nothing because anything she thought of was something. There's a story about Shibuti, who was one of the Buddha's uh, great disciples. Hmm? Well, Shibuti was known for his understanding of shunyata, emptiness. And one day, as the story goes, he was sitting on a hill, and the heavens opened up and uh, flowers started raining down. And he looked up and he said, what's this for? And the god said, Oh, Shibuti, this is in honor of your deep understanding of nothingness. And Shibuti said, But I wasn't thinking of nothingness. And the god said, Therefore, we honor your understanding of nothingness. <laughs> so, that's a very, but this is a very interesting insight, isn't it? If you discover that in this meditation, that's a great discovery. You cannot uh, think of this. Even the concept that we're still something. Exactly. Now, you've just discovered that something that Yogi talks about in um, Philosophy of Consciousness Without an Object. At the very, towards the very end of his path, he realized that all his path, he had been looking for some object. But he realized it, uh, it can't be an object. He had a technical way of saying this. He said, the subject to consciousness can never appear as an object before consciousness. You can look at this in terms of your own life. And one of the key questions on a spiritual path, and in fact you can build a spiritual path completely around this question, who am I? Find out who you are. And if you start investigating who you are, you find that you're always, you start off by having an image of yourself. Oh, I'm this sort of person, that sort of person. I'm a male American, you know. Say, so, well, no, that's not really me because who's seeing that image? You know what I mean? Who's the subject that's witnessing this object appearing in consciousness? And you keep going through this, and this is, again, what we just read about. Yogi talks about this process of negating. You start to realize, no, any object that appears in consciousness, this really can't be the true me. Because I, the true me, can never appear as an object before consciousness. So you, you really just right now discovered, you see, this is why our own practice connects with the teachings. You discover for yourself something in a teaching. As long as you can do what, in whatever fashion you want to do it, what we did today, you hear something weird that, like this that Dr. Wolf says that actually a rock has hardly any substantiality, and nothingness is completely substantial. And most people will read that and maybe think about it philosophically and intellectually. What I just, if I can just communicate this uh, to somebody here today, I, I would consider it a worthwhile talk, and that is the next time you read something like that, put your book down, pick up a rock, and see. I, you know, it's not a matter of figuring it out. What really is he talking about? Yes. As, as somebody who has an intellect, you're not talking about me, I hope. 
They also have to have a sense of humor. So I recognize that dynamic that's constantly at play in process that, that speaks to the meaning of relative illusion. That, in, that part of my intellect that is always attempting to find meaning in that which on another level I know is object or relative illusion, but still is searching and, and seeking meaning in the relative illusion, which is a very different process than settling into letting go of needing meaning in, in the relative illusion. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's so different. Uh, it depends. I, I, I don't quite know what the question. I mean, you, are you making a comment about your own no, experience? You made, or? you made a statement that the world is an illusion. What appears as substantial is an illusion. It doesn't mean that it has no meaning. So I'm simply bringing up part of the resistance to letting go of the illusory world is the need to find meaning in what is the value. Uh, so address value or meaning. I would say this, that uh, truly speaking, the, the, the greatest suffering that we have is not the uh, anxiety of being alone or physical pain or these sorts of things that are very ponderable. The greatest suffering is that we're so distracted with these illusions that we miss the true meaning and beauty of the world. That is, the world is saturated with meaning, that surrounds us all the time. And, you know, I think it was Ananda Moyamai, who, uh, who was a, a renunciate. She was a great uh, Indian mystic and lived as a renunciate. And she said, you people are the true renunciates. You've renounced this bliss. You're the ascetics. I'm not the renunciate. I'm overwhelmed with beauty and joy and meaning, you know. And in all traditions, really, uh, examine them. There may be practices for a temporary period of time where you negate or turn your back on something. This is just, you know, this is a discipline. If you want to learn to be a, uh, I don't know, a sprinter for the Olympics, there are certain things you have to give up for a while in your training, you know. You can't be eating hot fudge sundae ice creams or something for a while. That doesn't mean hot fudge sundae ice creams are ultimately evil. So in practices, there are certain disciplines you undertake. But in all traditions... They talk about this, this whole world is uh, the speech of God. And, and actually in an almost quite literal way. In the Quran has a beautiful way of talking about this. Uh, Allah says, we gave you ears and eyes because all, this are, all of it's a sign of God. The meaning of it all is God. There's nothing actually without meaning. Absolutely nothing without meaning. So our problem is, is, is the reverse, I think, from a spiritual point of view. It's not uh, looking at the world as though it were meaningless. Quite the opposite. It's trying to see the true meaning that is in every blessed moment. Uh, just, uh, along the same lines, I, I think it's fair to point out that when we look for meaning, we've already fragmented the world into small objects, and, and when we look for meaning, we're looking for connection between this object. We're trying to put it back together. <clears throat> and so, really, it's just a, a, a pale echo of the real meaning. So, when you get rid of that whole thing, then everything is interconnected, so you have infinite meaning in everything. Yeah, that's, I mean, we could talk about what the word meaning means, because it has a lot of meanings to, you know, different people in different contexts. Uh, but, 
we usually, I think you're absolutely right, we usually think of meaning as there's a sign and then there's a referent. So book, the meaning of book is, you know, this or something, this class of objects or, you know. Uh, but there's another meaning of meaning, a deeper meaning of meaning, and that is that all form is somehow transparent to the transcendent. That you can see in this form all of God, all of consciousness without an object, you know? That really this is a form of consciousness. So its meaning isn't uh, in the sense of like a sign and a referent and so forth. There's a direct meaning. This is um, uh, in, in sometimes when people speak of symbols, this is the way uh, it's meant. Uh, Jung talked about a symbol. A symbol doesn't just stand for something out there. It itself, in a certain sense, incorporates and lets the light through. It's numinous. It itself uh, represents that which it symbolizes. You see what I mean? So in this way, um, you know, the, the tree, the tree's meaning isn't that, it, that it, we have to find some meaning for the tree. The, the meaning of the tree is inherent in the tree. It's right there. If we, if we could just get beyond seeing it as just a hunk of matter sitting over there, you know what I mean? The meaning of the rock, by the way, you know, we do this exercise sort of leaving the rock behind, but you can turn it around. And our problem with the rock is we just think it's a hunk of rock. You should, you know, it's worthless. But the rock is saturated with meaning. Truly. Feels good, too. Yeah. Um, I just finished reading a book by a woman who's a Christian mystic. And she talks about... Um, reaching the experience of nothingness and was sort of stuck in this, she sort of had the experience of nothingness without the identification part. And she talks about that as a very, very painful period because there was no meaning at all. There was just nothingness. And then she went on to a further realization or maybe identification with nothingness where it all, again, regained or attained this vast so I think sometimes maybe we think of the nothingness, the seeing of the nothingness, which could actually be quite horrible and painful without the identification part. Well, and then in all mystical traditions, there are, you know, the dark night of the soul and things like that. Um, I think that uh, every mystic whose biography is spelled out enough in detail has in one sense or another, another maybe just instantaneously passed through this. Even Dr. Wolf, and he's described it as uh, the moment before realization, it just suddenly dawned on him that he was already that which he was seeking. And so therefore, give up the search. Now, this is a very good clue here. He gave up the search first, and he said, not expecting anything. In fact, it wasn't even so much a will. I mean, if you are already that which you're seeking, you can't be seeking, you know what I mean? And then the heavens opened up. If you want to learn how to swim, you have to get in the water first. And then you'll learn how to swim. You can't do it the other way around. And a lot of people stand on the shore and say, well, I would get in the water if I knew how to swim. Well, it just doesn't work that way, you know? You get in the water, then you learn how to swim. Um, so I think, look, let me say this about these negative kinds of experiences of dark night of the soul. I tell um, people who work with me, if you don't have some fear, 
in your spiritual practice, if you're meditating or whatever it is, uh, if you don't have some anxiety, if the world doesn't at times feel like it's unraveling and falling apart for you, your practice isn't working. You check out another practice. This is a sign that the practice is working. Dr. Wolf wrote about this, going through these periods of the desert, you know. Uh, he didn't even have it as bad as other mystics have it. But uh, if you're going to truly transform, the old has to go before the new can come in. You can't, you can't have it both ways, do you know what I mean? You can't have the, the glass full of water and full of wine. If you want to fill it with wine, you have to pour out the water, or depending on your value system, the other way around. Uh, so, and you have, again, you have to pour it out first. You can't wait till, it's, you know, till the wine comes in. You pour it out, then it gets filled up. Gee, we've really gone on a long time here. Um, why don't we just uh, bring this to an end? And uh, if uh, anybody would like to hang around afterwards, I'll be here. And if you're interested in uh, the center or I've got some books around and all that, we can take care of you here. Thank you very much for being a wonderful audience and asking great questions.